you to turn there now as we prepare to hear from God's word. Recently, I was mowing a lawn with a lawnmower with which I was unfamiliar. It had been raining all week, so the grass was particularly tall and thick, and it was on an incline. So I struggled quite a bit trying to, to mow this lawn. And after a few minutes of doing this, I had to go a little ways, kind of pull back. I thought to myself, it would be really nice to have a self-propelled mower right now. And right after I said that, I looked down at the front wheels and realized, oh, this is a self-propelled mower. So all I had to do was lift the handle, engage the front wheels, and it made my job 43% easier, at least. Now, I unnecessarily struggled to mow a lawn, but we often struggle unnecessarily in life. God's grace is available to each of us, but we often, in our ignorance, or probably more truthfully, in our pride, try to accomplish our own plans in our own strength. You know, I actually would have been better off using just a regular mower, than using a self-propelled mower without engaging the motor. Because then I just had a lawnmower that was heavier and harder to push than a regular mower. What should have been a benefit was actually a hindrance. And when we act pridefully, we not only forsake God's grace, but God actually works against us. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Our passage today illustrates that the proud rely on themselves, but the humble obediently trust in the Lord. So let's look to the Lord again before we look at his word. Father, you are almighty God, and we look to you this morning. You are high and lifted up. You inhabit eternity. Your name is holy. Yet you dwell with those who are of a contrite and lowly heart to revive the hearts of the lowly and to revive the spirits of those who have a contrite heart. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself through your word. And so we ask, Father, that you would give us understanding of your word. And Father, as we look to your word, I pray that we would see your glory. And Father, as we behold your glory, we would be transformed into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. In this chapter, there is a clear contrast between the actions of David and Absalom. Absalom provides an example of how the proud rely on themselves, while David shows how the humble trust in God. The first 12 verses highlight Absalom's rise to power, and while the rest of the chapter shows David's response to adversity. We may be inclined to have some sympathy for Absalom. We've been following along with his life. David provided a poor example, unfortunately, for Absalom. David failed to handle the situation with Amnon 
and Tamar. However, that does not justify Absalom's actions. The sins and shortcomings of others do not make it okay or justify our sinful actions. We have seen already that Absalom is somebody who will take matters into his own hands. And he will go to extremes to get whatever he wants. He orchestrated the murder of his half-brother out of revenge, possibly to remove a rival from the throne. He burned Joab's field just to get his attention. So as we pick up the story of Absalom in chapter 15, the narrator continues to show Absalom as an ambitious, resourceful leader who will do whatever it takes to seize power. The events of chapter 15 begin after Absalom had been in Jerusalem two years, uh, following his three years in Geshur, uh, where he had fled following Amnon's murder. So it's been about seven years since the incident with Tamar, five years since Amnon was murdered. So in these first 12 verses that we will read now, we will see how the proud rely on themselves. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. The first indication of pride is seen in how Absalom makes his plans apart from God. The text notes he got himself a chariot, horses, and 50 men. Absalom is the first king of Israel to acquire a chariot. In the Old Testament, chariots are usually a sign of men's strength. David wrote in Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Samuel had actually warned that this would happen. He said that when Israel asked for a king, that the king would take their sons and appoint them to his chariots. 
So Absalom, by gathering a chariot and these horses and this group of men, he's making a name for himself. He's trying to look kingly. Absalom's ambition is also seen how he would rise early, come to the gate. This is the place where people would come to the king for justice, to have an audience, to hear their concerns. But Absalom usurps the role of the king. He pretends to be sympathetic to, the, to whomever comes to the gate. No matter what the issue, Absalom would say, yes, you are just and right. And if only I was in charge, you would receive justice. But he undermines David's authority. He implies the king hasn't appointed anybody to hear him. And the king's not interested in giving justice. There may be some merit to Absalom's claims, but it was at least an exaggeration. We know from the last chapter uh, that the woman of Tekoa was able to get an audience with David, and he did provide her with some protection and justice as well. So we continue in verse 5. As these men would come to Absalom and bow to him, Absalom would, would put out his hand and stop them from bowing, and he would kiss them. It seems this is an apparent act of false humility on Absalom's part. He's showing empathy for them. He's showing affection. And he's kind of saying, you know, I'm one of you. I'm a man of the people. And so we see the result of this in verse 6, that Absalom steals the hearts of the men of Israel. So then we see, uh, continuing on, that not only does Absalom make plans to get what he wants, we see that Absalom is willing to use God to advance his plans. So after four years of this stealing the hearts of the men of Israel, Absalom is ready to take his next step. He asked David if he can fulfill his vow to the Lord. Now we know that this is just a ruse to have himself declared as king, but it's a clever request on his part. Because he appeals to David, David's not going to deny him the opportunity to worship. But Absalom is not planning to worship. He's really using the Lord's name in vain here, breaking the third commandment. Somewhat ironically, David responds to Absalom, go in peace. You've probably heard the Hebrew term shalom, which means peace. So ab shalom. Absalom's name means father of peace. But Absalom was the complete opposite of peace. He brought strife to his home and war to a nation. David's response is a bit perplexing to us. We wonder, wasn't David aware of what Absalom was doing? Yet we see David continue in his passiveness. Really, since the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, this has characterized David. But Absalom was born in Hebron, so maybe it seems like a legitimate request for him to want to go back there to worship. So David does not expect a coup. It's a place with which Absalom was familiar, about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. It was where David was declared king, which makes it a strategic location for Absalom to set up his kingdom and his rebellion. So while he is heading to worship, he is having secret messengers, or maybe what we would call sleeper cells, uh, prepare to declare him king at the sound of the trumpet. 
Next we see not only does Absalom use God to advance his plans, he uses other people as well. We saw earlier how he would tell men whatever they wanted to hear to win their hearts. In verse 11, we see that if he can't win hearts, uh, he's willing to coerce them. There were 200 men here that were unaware of Absalom's intentions. Apparently, they came to participate in the worship. This was an effective strategy on Absalom's part, likely drawing several of David's key men away from Jerusalem so that they would be unavailable to David when he would need them most. And then we see Absalom sends for Ahithophel. Now, we're not given an explanation of why Ahithophel turns on David. But we do know that he was the grandfather of Bathsheba. Perhaps Absalom used that to offer Ahithophel an opportunity for revenge. But regardless, this was a significant blow to David. As we will see later, Ahithophel was a trusted advisor and known for the excellence of his counsel. Now, Absalom is what we would call a natural-born leader. He's good-looking, he's ambitious, he's calculating, he's able to influence people to get things done. He's an excellent politician. He tells people exactly what they want to hear, but never actually does anything about it. His flaws, though, are not his good looks or his ability to plan, his intelligence, resourcefulness. He was a hard worker getting up early. His flaw is that he used the gifts that God had given him only to advance his own plans without any regard for what God wanted. Absalom provides both a warning of the type of leader we should avoid following and the type of leader we should avoid becoming. We never see Absalom show any acts of repentance or contrition, humility, or prayer. He's willing to commit treason under the banner of worshiping God while doing it. Now, we don't have to be guilty of killing family members or staging a hostile takeover to be guilty of pride. In many ways, pride is our natural disposition. Pride does not even have to involve evil pursuits necessarily. It may be just that we live our lives apart from God. We make our own plans. Maybe it's boasting in our accomplishments, in our appearance, judging and looking down on others. Maybe it's manifested in how we complain about church leadership and government leadership. We implicitly say, if only I was in charge, things would be better. So how are you using the gifts that God has given you? Are you using them to achieve your own plans or to build up the body of Christ to advance God's kingdom? Now, in this next part of the chapter, we see David's response to Absalom's revolt. Now, in our studies of 1 and 2 Samuel, we have seen highs and lows in David's character. Sometimes David himself provides the example to avoid. However, in this passage, we see David's character at its best in what may be the worst time of his life. While Absalom stole the hearts of men, here we see an example of why David is known as 
a man after God's own heart. What makes David's character so exemplary in this passage is not how clever or strong or brave or how good his strategy is. It's that he is humble. What David shows us in his response is that the humble trust in God. We'll go ahead and read now, starting in verse 13 through the rest of the chapter. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. The king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and with all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do what seems good to me, to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the forge of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok 
and Abiathar the priests with you there. So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimeaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. This is most likely the darkest time in David's life. In Psalm 3, which Melanie read earlier, this describes this time in David's life. And he refers to the foes rising against him and those who are telling him there is no salvation in God. Now, David's been on the run for his life before, but this time his enemies are his own son and others who were loyal to him. On top of this, David has himself to blame for the situation he's in. David is receiving this punishment because of his own sin with Bathsheba and Uriah and because of the consequences of his failure to deal with his own sons. You know, sometimes when we're wronged, that can motivate us. It can energize us. But when our own sin leads us into difficulties, we're more likely to feel discouraged and ashamed and distant from God. So in our time of greatest need for God, we tend to think God has turned away from us. We avoid him for fear that he will reject us. Because that is the complete opposite of what God is like. In Psalm 32, 3 through 5, David describes the agony of concealing his sin but he rejoices in the forgiveness he received when he confessed. He says in Psalm 32, verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Our sin may still have consequences, but no matter what your sin, God is willing to forgive a humble, repentant heart. So in David's response, we'll identify three ways the humble show trust in the Lord. And these all contrast Absalom's demonstration of pride. So firstly, we see that the humble seek the good of others. So in contrast to Absalom, who used others to advance his agenda, in verses 13 through 23, we see David is concerned about the welfare of others. He shows concern for those who are with him and for the entire city. He says, we must flee lest he strike the city with the edge of the sword. And David does not have to coerce men to follow him as Absalom did. In verse 15, they pledge loyalty to him. In verse 16, we have an interesting note here about him leaving concubines behind, which is a foreshadowing of an event that will take place later. So I'll let Pastor Jim deal with that one next week. Um, but it appears after they are out of the city, David stops and he takes stock of those who are with him. And there are three groups identified in addition to his own household. It says his servants, the Carathites and the Pelathites. Uh, these were the king's bodyguards. And then 600 Gittites. And verse 19 begins a dialogue with 
Ittai, the leader of the Gittites, which seems to me to get a surprising amount of attention. Uh, Ittai was an unlikely ally. He was a Gittite, which means he was from Gath. Right? You know who else was from Gath? It was Goliath. So he was a Philistine. Now, there's no doubt that David would have benefited from support of Ittai, but David basically says, you just got here, you don't owe me anything, why bother wandering about with me as a fugitive? Just go, go help Absalom. And David responds, he says, may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. We've highlighted that word in the study of First and Second Samuel, steadfast love. It's God's loyal or covenant love. He uses that to refer to David and to Israel. And interestingly, he uses it here. David wishes that God would show this kind of love to Ittai, this foreigner. The Ittai is aware of the danger, and he invokes the name of the Lord and pledges undying loyalty to David. His language is reflective of that of Ruth, who pledged loyalty to Naomi, another non-Israelite who was faithful to the Lord. The text doesn't tell us exactly why uh, Ittai has this kind of faithfulness to the Lord. Maybe he was there when he, he saw Goliath defeated. Maybe he saw the impact of the Ark of the Covenant, which brought curses on the Philistines. And he saw the Lord for who he really was. But regardless, Ittai proves to be a faithful follower of David's. And later on, David will give him a third of the army uh, to be in his charge. So why does the narrator emphasize this conversation among many David must have had in this trek out of Jerusalem? Perhaps it's to remind us that God's grace comes from unexpected sources. But it also tells us that true followers of the Lord are marked by their faithfulness and not by their lineage or who they know. We see next that David not only seeks the welfare of others, but in contrast to Abraham who used worship as a cloak for evil, David gives God authentic worship. The Ark of the Covenant was a powerful presence among the people and could have given David an advantage. But David refused to use the Ark in that manner and he sends it back to Jerusalem. In 1 Samuel 3, 18, Samuel has this vision from the Lord, and then he reveals to Eli that the Lord had proclaimed judgment on Eli's house for his failure to restrain his sons. And then Eli says the very same thing that David says in verse 26. He, he says, let him do what seems good to me. But then Eli allows the Israelites to take the ark into battle, hoping the ark would save them. But instead, the ark is captured by the Philistines and Eli and his sons perish. So now David finds himself suffering the consequences of not restraining his sons. But he refuses to use the ark as a good luck charm, as the Israelites did earlier. And he chooses instead to trust in the Lord. Note David's remarks in verse 25. He says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord... He will bring me back and let me see both it, referring to the ark, and his dwelling place. 
See, David recognizes it's not the presence of the ark which will bring God's favor. He understands it's not his good behavior either that will procure God's favor. In verse 26, he says, but if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do what seems good to him. David is aware he's getting what he really deserves. Nathan the prophet had told him back in 2 Samuel 12, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me. But David shows complete trust in the Lord. And by God's grace, he resolves to do what is right regardless of the outcome. And David's unwillingness to keep the ark and his resignation that he is willing to accept God's will, whether for good or for evil, shows that David is giving genuine worship. Okay, this is not doing something to earn God's favor. This is not for show. David's worship and humility is further displayed in verse 30. We see him weeping, walking barefoot, with his head covered as he heads up to the mountain to worship. And we see David now going from passivity to activity. He's now positively influencing those around him who also humble themselves. You know, authentic worship is exalting God for who he is, for all he has done, and all that he will do. It's not just praising him when things are going well. And David makes worship a priority even when he's fleeing for his life. Is worship that important to us? What does it take for us to neglect to worship God? Is authentic worship a priority in our lives? Now we noted earlier that Absalom made his own plans, relied on his own resourcefulness, and once again we see how David contrasts him and that David humbly asks God for help. I referenced 1 Peter 5, 5 earlier that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 6, Peter then says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And then verse 7 tells us how we humble ourselves. By casting our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Genuine prayer by its very nature is an act of humility because it expresses our dependence on God and our need for him. So following David's declaration here to do whatever the Lord decides, David is faced with more bad news. He finds out Ahithophel is with Absalom. This is a significant development. Not only was David betrayed by a friend, but he also lost a great strategist. This could be cause for David to despair. Maybe David would think, you know, maybe things just aren't going to turn out well. Maybe he should just give up. So how does David respond? Verse 31, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. David immediately turns to God. He demonstrates dependence. But David does not see prayer as a substitute for action, but something that accompanies action. It seems that David perceives Hushai's opportune arrival as an answer to his prayer. 
this prayer and David's response is not David behaving passively, but being proactive. He asks Hushai, who is apparently an older man and may have slowed David down, uh, to try to gain confidence of Absalom and then be able to defeat the council of Ahithophel. And then David worked out a plan that he would get word back through Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, whom he had already instructed to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and then he told them basically to keep their eyes and ears out for information. The chapter then concludes by noting that Hushai arrives back in Jerusalem just as Absalom is entering. The timing is fortunate for David and apparently part of his answer to prayer. Now, in my experience, I think we are more inclined to take action without prayer than to pray without taking action. However, neither extreme is wise or necessary. David prays, and then he sees the opportunity to take action. Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse is made ready for battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. God does expect us to do what is in our power, but ultimately we trust him for the results. God is the one who will bring victory. So, we pray that we will pass our exam, but we don't neglect to study. Right? We pray that God will provide a job, but we get an education, we build our resume, we network. We pray that our children will turn out godly, so we seek wisdom from God's word, from good books, from the counsel of others. We attempt to exemplify godliness in the home we disciple our children. We rebuke and exhort them as necessary. We pray for the lost. And then we look for ways to engage. And we give of our resources to help others. Now, so far in this passage, we have seen ourselves in Absalom, who shows our tendency toward pride and to make our plans apart from God. We have seen our need for humility and trust in the Lord exemplified by David. Now I want us to see our hope, which is found in Christ. Now I know many of you in here are taking the first principles class. One of those principles is that each text in the Bible points to Jesus in some way. For those of you who are in the biblical theology elective, you have seen how the Bible is one unified story written by one divine author that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So where do we see Jesus in this passage? Look at verse 25. You won't see the name Jesus here, but the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. God's favor we see here, it can be translated in a term probably more common to us as grace. Grace emphasizes unmerited favor, unmerited kindness. So David is not asking for anything because of what he has done, because then it wouldn't be grace. He knows he deserves death. So his appeal is to God's loving kindness. But can God just overlook David's sin? 
That doesn't seem like righteousness and justice. But God doesn't just sweep David's sin under the rug. David's sin was paid for by the greater king, Jesus Christ, of whom David is both an ancestor and a type. In David's escape from Absalom, there are several striking parallels to what David goes through in the passion of Christ. We'll look at a few of those. We see that the true king is rejected. In this chapter, David is mentioned as the king 19 times. The writer is clearly identifying David, not Absalom, as the true king. And although David does have some loyal followers, it seems the majority of Israel has rejected him. But Jesus is also the true king. But he wasn't the king that people wanted. They wanted a king who would destroy their enemies and fight their battles. Not a king who would meet the need they really need, really, really had, which was for forgiveness of sins. So they crucified him. Next we see that the true king is betrayed. In Psalm 41.9, David wrote, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This most likely refers to Ahithophel, who was a trusted friend and advisor. In John 13, 18, Jesus quotes this passage, indicating that this was fulfilled in Judas as Jesus' betrayer. David finds out about this betrayal. We see it says, across the brook Kidron, which is just at the foot of the Mount of Olives. This is the very place where Jesus himself was betrayed. John 18, 1 and 2 reads this way. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Interestingly, both these betrayers, Judas and Ahithophel, end up taking their own lives. But we also see the true king is humbled. David has said, let him do what seems good to him, showing submission to the Lord. And in that very same location, Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Both were committed to trusting the Lord, even through difficulty. The king also receives unexpected support. We observed how Ittai, the Philistine soldier, pledged allegiance to David. After Jesus is crucified, it's the Roman centurion who remarks, truly, this was the Son of God. We also see how the true king shows concern for others. In David's darkest hour, even as he is fleeing for his life, we noted how he was thinking of others. He was willing to sacrifice himself in order to save the city. Notice how Jesus prays in John 17, 18 through 21, in the very place where David had just been. Jesus says, And you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In Jesus' darkest hour, he is praying for others. Did you catch what he said in verse 20? Also, for those who will believe in me. He was praying for us at that time. But the true king also prays expectantly. That's really not the best word, but I couldn't find a better one. Uh, but I think you'll get the point. David prayed to turn the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness. And then he seizes the opportunity to do so through Hushai. Jesus prayed on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then Jesus does the very thing necessary to provide that forgiveness. He gives his life. In John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, Jesus says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So David does provide an example of one who is faithful in adversity. And although David's example is helpful, we need more than an example. Jesus not only provides an example of humility, we see that in Philippians 2, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the death of the cross. But because Jesus was, was without sin, he is also able to pay for our sin. Ryan prayed from this verse this morning, 1 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only did Jesus take on our sin, we took on his righteousness. Through Jesus, God sees us as righteous in him. This is the basis on which we can find favor in God's eyes. Because in Christ, the love the Father has for the Son, he has for us. If you have not asked Jesus to forgive your sin, I encourage you to do so now. He is ready and he is willing to forgive. Whatever need you have, whatever difficulty you're facing, turn to God. He gives grace to those who humbly seek him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin that became sin for us. We thank you that through him we have been reconciled to you. We have forgiveness of sin. Father, I pray that we would humble ourselves before you even as Christ humbled himself and was obedient. That we would seek the welfare of others. That we would worship you authentically. And Lord, that we would humbly depend on you. Father, we look to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.